from a very young age, I always had an appetite for being useful, for doing something that, that has a purpose or that has an impact. Hi there. Thanks for being here. I'm Greg, a leadership and career coach. In this podcast, I interview people who follow their passion and purpose. I go deep into understanding their motivations, their constraints, and what was going on intellectually and emotionally in the key parts of their journey. With this podcast, I want to inspire others to follow their passion and purpose. If this is you, you may also be interested in my six-week Find Direction course. You can find more information at www.dareby.me. Dare yourself, my friends. My guest today is Caroline Duast. She is specialized in the humanitarian sector, working in crisis situations, conflict zones, and natural disasters. Caroline is currently working for, from Kinshasa in the Democratic Republic of Congo for the UN Refugee Agency. Before this, she worked for the Norwegian Refugee Council and for the International Federation of the Red Cross and the Red Crescent. For her humanitarian work, she's also lived in the Philippines, Gaza, Peru, and even Fiji. I'm sure I'm missing some places in the list. And she's worked in Greece, Ukraine, Afghanistan, Iran, Nigeria, Cameroon, Myanmar, and Bangladesh. And again, probably missing some places. I invited Caroline, not only because she has followed her purpose with great courage and passion, but also because before doing this, she had started her career in London as an architect. So she's got a lot to tell about what it takes to follow your purpose and also about making a career change. Caroline is also my sister-in-law. It's my great pleasure to have her as my sister-in-law. And she's the sister of Louise de West, who I interviewed earlier in the podcast. Caroline, I'm super excited to have you on the Debbie podcast. A warm welcome. Thank you very much for having me. A little note of logistics. Caroline is actually taking a call from Kinshasa in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So the line may be scratchy at times, but I guess it's part of the episode here. So Caroline, I thought we could start where you could describe what you're actually doing in Kinshasa. Sure. Uh, thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be able to share some of my experience and decisions throughout the years. So today I worked, as you mentioned, for uh, the United Nations High Commission for Refugee, and I am a shelter specialist. I specialize in providing emergency shelter for people that are affected by displacement. So that can be conflict related or it can be related to some natural events, natural disasters, volcano eruptions. You might have heard earlier this year the situation in, in the eastern part of Congo with the volcano eruption. My specific role here is to coordinate all the different actors who are responding to people displaced. So I bring together all the different NGOs, whether they're national NGOs or international NGOs, including the Red Cross movement and the UN agencies who are involved in providing housing assistance to people affected by the crises. My role involves understanding the context and where the needs are. There's a bit of a strategic level to it of understanding the big picture, the big figures, communicating that, but also assisting the more operational level. It's very interesting, very challenging, but also very interesting. It sounds incredibly challenging and complex. It sounds like there are a ton of moving pieces, very high stakes in environments that are by definition in crisis. I'd be interested to hear from you 
where those seeds of the work that you do now got planted and when? A long time ago, actually, now that I think about it. So as you explained earlier, I started my career as an architect. And when I left high school, I was very passionate about building better places for people. And I think that's what brought me to studying architecture. So I was lucky enough to study architecture in a school of architecture, which had a very social minded approach and also had a department within the school of architecture on dealing with humanitarian response. And this was really by coincidence that in my second year of architecture, the one of the teachers decided to do a course on reconstruction after the tsunami, the big tsunami emergency in 2004 in Southeast Asia. It just brought a whole new perspective on what it meant to provide housing for people. And it wasn't at all about design and construction. And when you study architecture, you solve problems through design and space and understanding space, understanding the user needs, not about the architecture. It's about the politics. It's about the environment. It's about natural events like a volcano eruption or a tsunami that you have no control of. And even if you build the strongest building in the world, won't withstand uh, lava or a tsunami. So it was also quite fascinating to discover that everything I was learning in architecture that you can solve society problems around space and living and quality of housing, there were certain things that you couldn't, but you had to do a much deeper analysis of the political context in which you were working and the geographical context. And I think this is something that really triggered me. I studied architecture in the UK and in the UK, you have to take a year out to do an internship between your undergraduate and your master's. And I decided instead of doing it like all my peers in London, I spoke a bit of Spanish and I had this appetite of traveling and I thought, why not go to Latin America? And I started doing research and I found this architecture practice in Lima. And whilst I was there, a big earthquake happened in a city a couple of hours south of, of Lima. And I got involved with a local NGO who were specialized in building emergency shelter after natural disasters. And three days after the earthquake with 250 volunteers, I think we built 50 or 100 homes. I was very intrigued. I was like, wow, this is really interesting. But okay, how can I com really professionally combine this? I went as a volunteer. Can so I pause I'm, you? Yes. <laughs> Two questions I'd love to go deeper on. But you said from early on, you were interested in the humanitarian aspect. What do you mm. think drove you to this interest? Actually, interesting you say that. I wasn't interested in the humanitarian aspect. I was interested in more the social aspect. So what made you interested in the social? From a very young age, I always had an appetite for being useful, for doing something that, that has a purpose or that has an impact. I, I think, and maybe we'll, we'll get into this later because I went back and forth between my 
humanitarian aspiration and architecture and more traditional architecture. And when I was studying and I did this course on, on humanitarian, when we were talking about this post-tsunami response, for me, it was unbelievable that we see these in movies, people who, who lose everything overnight because of, of a situation like that. I couldn't even imagine how it would be to have to rebuild your life after an event like that. That touched me, I think, personally as an individual. And I felt I wanted to do something about it or try at least. So you helped in the city south of Lima and you saw in three days how you could build 50 houses and you were really intrigued. I was intrigued, but I also saw a lot of flaws. I also saw that there are this very classical expression, the path to hell is paved with good intentions. I think it, it was all, always very important and throughout my studies to be very critical as well of people who try to do good. You can, you see someone who's hungry on the street, you can give them food or you can teach them a job so that they can be, that they can feed themselves later on. And so I, I went there, I participated to this, this reconstruction effort, but I was also like, if I did this again, would I want to go back with this NGO and do this again? I was like, not sure. After the situation, I was supposed to go back to London and work in a more traditional architecture practice in the UK. And I decided to stay longer. And I worked for a local NGO who was working on slum upgrading. And I think this was another pivotal point in my career, I was fascinated because they had been working there for 40 years. They had a knowledge of the community that I could never hope to gain. And when I look back at my career now, the experience of working for, for a national NGO and understanding how they work was really valuable. You were supposed to go back to the UK to work for an architecture studio, but you postponed. How did you make that choice? Yeah, I felt young and free and I was 21 and I felt there wasn't a lot of limits to what I could be doing. And I knew that a lot of people took two years out between the, the bachelors and the masters. And so that kind of gave me confidence that I wouldn't be the only one gathering more experience. But I had the confidence as well, whilst living in Lima, that it was a recognized organization who had expertise that I could learn from. And it took a bit of time of convincing my, my parents because they were very generously also supporting me financially. Then I had to convince them that it was going to be an added value to my career. So it sounds like already there, you knew you wanted to add value to your career through the NGO path. It was a hunch. I had done six months in this other architecture practice, which does really fantastic work, but I was bored. I found the work absolutely, utterly boring. And, and interestingly, I had a number of friends who had also come from France or other European countries to do an internship there and they loved it. So it's very personal. It's th that's when I realized like they had an amazing experience and it wasn't for me. I, I knew it at that time that, that. I had to search for an area within the construction sector because I still had an element that I really enjoyed about 
understanding construction processes and building. And I've always enjoyed building with my own hands and being on site. And there was a part of architecture that I wanted to keep, but the, the, there was parts of it that I found that I didn't find interesting. I didn't, the satisfaction of designing things in a certain way that look good, it wasn't enough for me. And for some, and they do it much better than I do because they also uh, spend more years doing it. This is also where I was like, am I going to continue with this architecture career? I have another five years to do if I want to qualify. So I had to constantly juggle back and forth between an area which I found really interesting, but so far, financially was coming across as being maybe a bit difficult. Mm. Was I ever going to be able to work in the sector and pay my rent? At that time, it was still a big question mark. I was also a bit concerned of my experience versus my peers. So the reason then I decided to take a second year work experience and I went back to London and I was like, I can't go back to do my master's with having worked in slums in Lima, like I will know nothing about building construction law in the UK. But when I went back to London in August, 2008, there was a big financial crisis and I was trying to find a job in that environment. And so there was a lot of questioning at that time. Did I make the right decision? What did I do? I'm wasting my time. I should have gotten back to university. Eventually, I found a job scanning 20 years archive of an architecture practice. That also gave me the flexibility to pursue my career in the social areas I was interested in. And that's when I started to get in touch with Architecture Sans Frontières. And I volunteered for them for five years on the side of my university degree and my multiple jobs between that time. And I learned a lot also from juggling different things at that time and accepting that there are certain things in life that you can't control, but you need to keep going and you need to find a way to make it worth it. And there's not much you can do in the face of the financial crisis. So after that year, then you got back to university and and finished your, your degree? Exactly. And I went back to... Oxford Brookes University after exploring different options. And one of the reasons I went back to Oxford Brookes is I could combine my diploma in architecture with a master's in development and humanitarian practice. So that was another strategic choice. I then qualified, I had a diploma in architecture. I had my master's in development and emergency practice. I wasn't a qualified architect. And I had studied architecture for five years with breaks and internships. And at that time, I really wanted to just leave architecture and go and work for an NGO. And I had a lot of peer pressure and also personal pressure, I think, on getting going through the last phase, which is working two years in an architecture practice to get the, and you have to pass a test and there's a number of exams, et cetera, on, on law construction and law and uh, business management, et cetera. And um, that, yes, it was another painful process to go through, but I'm very happy I did. 
looking back at it, I was like, oh, but I know all these people who haven't. And, and I think it gives me a lot more confidence in my work today, even if I don't work as an architect, but I often meet people from government and in countries where I work, a title is very somehow is gives me credibility. It gives me credibility to lead on a sector on housing and, and beyond that, I also gained a lot of experience during those two years working in an architecture practice and following through projects from start to finish, which I hadn't done in my previous internship because of, I was young and less experienced and then this financial crisis. So I learned a lot and it gave me a lot of rigor, I think, to my work today. Even if once again, I felt similar things and my first internship, I felt, I found the work very boring and I was yeah. like, this is not for me. When you took the decision, did you know at the end of this, of those two years that you would jump onto the NGO side? Yes. I quit my job the day I passed my last exam before I got the results. I knew that I had passed. I, I, I was. 90% sure that I would have passed, but I was so eager to, to leave that actually at that same time I had been applying for jobs in NGOs. And I guess one of the big, that was another big challenge actually was getting a job because I think NGO. I applied over. Yeah, because it's a closed loop. It's a difficult sector to get in. It's a very difficult sector to get a paid job. There's a lot of unpaid work. There's a lot of volunteering experience and I would absolutely recommend, recommend it to anyone who wants to go into that sector, get a fair, get a feel, volunteer after work when you have time to understand how the sector works, but to get a paid job, this was the constant question. I'd been volunteering on the side of my, my, my architecture education, but also these two years working and during these exams, I was running workshops in Cameroon, teaching people about architecture and participation and working with vulnerable communities at the same time, all of that at the same time. Wow. And it wasn't clear to me if I was going to be able to find uh, a paid job in the sector. And I think I applied. And at that time, you probably remember, it was just after the Haiti earthquake, 2010. And so they were looking for a lot of francophones, but I had lost, missed the train. It was 2012. So it was two years after the earthquake. And most people who were there either had been there straight after. There was a bit of a closed loop of francophones turning in, in Haiti and I think I sent over 30 or 40 different job applications. I got two interviews, one for a job that I didn't get and one for an intern, unpaid internship in Geneva. That's what I took. And I, I, I had set in my mind, I will not take an unpaid job. I, I, and now I've got a master's in humanitarian work. I speak three languages. I've got a, a diploma in architecture. I've got field experience with the, the work I'd been doing with Architecture Sans Frontières and my time in Peru, and I was just, just not getting anything. I read somewhere that you had built a network yes. through your voluntary experience, but also through other routes. Wow. And how old were you when you took yeah. that unpaid internship? 
I was 28. Yeah. Okay. You're 28 and you take an unpaid, unpaid internship in Geneva. So it's not Geneva, a cheap city to live in. Not a cheap place to live in. And so you took it. I took it and I had lived on a really tight budget the last two years with, on my, my paid job. It was probably in the back of my mind, it was a possibility that I would need a bit of funding somehow, somewhere to be able to go to the next step. Some people had told me, if you don't get a job, just buy a one-way ticket to the next disaster and just go and hang out with the aid workers there and you'll get a job event. That's another route that I know a lot of people have taken. It's pretty bold, but, but it gets you places apparently. No, and absolutely. I had built my network over the years. I had been to every single conferences, talks, presentation I found on architecture, development, social, humanitarian crisis response, and the masters I had also done. I, I also had a network through that of people who, who had and were working in the sector as well. Despite all of this, the only thing you found was an unpaid internship in Geneva for... Through the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. Okay. I went there, I signed for three months. And I had an objective in my head, three months, pure networking. By the end of the three months, I need a job. That's what happened. I, <laughs> no, I, it was a challenging, it was a challenging choice. Actually, everyone was like, what you're, you just qualified as an architect and you're going to take an unpaid internship. What are you thinking? I even remember my boss looking at me being like, you're going to work for the UN. You're going to take an internship for the UN. But I was strategic. I didn't take any internship at the UN. I took an internship at the UN in the shelter sector. As opposed to a lot of other interns I then met when I was there, I was the oldest as well. Like most people who do internship at the UN are straight out of undergraduate school, sometimes postgraduate school. I had another two, three years professional experience on top of that. And they just wanted to work for the UN. I didn't want to work for the UN. I wanted to work in, in, in conflict crisis places. It was interesting to see how people were approaching it differently. And yeah, I, I kept a lot of good contact from that time. And I do believe that the job I have today with the same UN agency is also partly because 10 years ago, I did an internship there and then they saw my career evolve over the year. And that gave me some credibility of some insights within uh, UNHCR. How do you do networking? Sounds like you're pretty good at it. You said you attend every event that's relevant to your field, but then what do you do there? And what did you do when yeah. you were doing this internship? Yeah, very good question. I, I remember having a lot of discussions with people about how to network. Like how do you meet people? How do you get noticed? Because that networking is trying to get noticed by people who might be able to provide you advice or, or guide you or give you tips or ideas of where you can move next. So I remember going to talks and I would force myself to ask one question or at least try. So I would be super attentive during the presentation and I would think about, and I would take notes and then think about something that I found interesting 
or I wanted more information about, try and put myself out there and in front of a big audience, put my hand up and, and ask a question. And I was, I felt very young in some of these places surrounded by professionals and experts in the field. Sometimes it was a bit daunting, but I remember forcing myself to to try and every time ask a question. Sometimes you put your hand up and people don't take your questions. It doesn't matter. But at least I would leave this place being like, at least I tried. At least I thought about something that I could have asked that was somehow not completely stupid. And then other people might come up to you saying, oh, I thought your point was very interesting. I've also come across a similar situation. So asking a question is not just for the panelists. It's also for the other people in the room who might be like, oh, this person asked the same question I thought about, and maybe they're going to come up to you and speak to you, and then you can exchange experiences. And so that's one thing I, I remember doing. How did you do it in, uh, when you were in Geneva? I was very lucky. There was, a, there was one of the former interns who, first of all, introduced me to all the different departments. When you arrive, they take you office by office and they introduce you. And then I would try and have a uh, lunch, day lunch with, first of all, my, my own colleagues, rather than going to spend my time with the other interns who uh, were my age and were probably in a similar situation trying to get a job. I thought, no, I'm going to hang out with people in my team who have, who have 10, 20 years experience more than I do and ask them about their experience and where they've been and how they got there and some of the challenges and yeah, being curious, asking questions to people who you might aspire to professionally, even if it can be sometimes a bit scary or a bit daunting. Yeah. There's, a, there's another thing that I remember that I wanted to mention tips that someone gave me when I was trying to figure out how to network. And they told me never ask for something, ask for advice, because it's their choice to give you the advice they want to give you. If you ask them for a job, they feel cornered. If you ask them, oh, can you give me the contact of this person? They feel uh, in a duty to give you something, but they don't know who you are. Whereas if you ask them for advice, if you ask them, so if you were in my position, if you were 20 years younger, how would you go about getting into the sector? It's a maybe less confrontational way of, of approaching people who probably have a lot to share, but can't commit. So it's your, yeah. What I really like about what you said is once you clarified what you really wanted to do, you were just curious, like you said curious about the, what you could learn that could help you. And it was a, a great description of a growth mindset for people who are not clear about what they want to do. Sometimes networking sounds completely daunting. It's like, wh why would I network? But once you do know why you're networking, then confronting your fears and actually standing up and asking the questions, well, makes sense at least this is mm. why you're doing it. And, and that makes it easier. And, and then talking to people and being curious is much easier. From then on, one thing led to the, the next. Everything we just spoke about where the decision-making moments, the back and forth architecture, development architecture, can I actually 
get a paid job in the sector? What does it mean? So when I made this decision to go at UNHCR, I still didn't know whether I was going to get a, a paid job, but I somehow felt closer to the network who could actually give me a paid job somehow. During my time there, there was the big typhoon in three days before the end of my internship. I got a call from the Red Cross saying, when can you leave? We need someone super urgently. We think we've got a job for you. Can you leave next week? And I packed my bags in a couple of days. I went to get my summer clothes from back home and, and I left a few days later. Yeah, and then that was super exciting. I'd been applying and waiting for it for 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 weeks and weeks. I didn't know who I was going to work with. I didn't know where I was going to live. There was a lot of unknowns, and I hadn't worked for the Red Cross before, so I didn't know their internal systems and processes. And I also actually have to admit that I accepted a job that was within the shelter sector, but more on the data management side of things, which is not really my area of expertise either. But they were like, oh, but you'll do a bit of this. Don't you worry. We'll teach you. We'll help you out. But you can also do these other things that are more around construction, etc." So I also took something not, it wasn't a perfect, it wasn't the perfect job offered, but I was I'd been waiting for that moment to, to go to the field for, for so long that it wasn't a difficult decision at that time. What, what made you want to go to the field instead of working in the headquarters of, of a big agency? Going back to my initial interest of having an impact and working with people who are in need. It's not at headquarters that you work with people in need. It's in the field. So for me, it was very clear that headquarters was not for now, was maybe for later. And I've since gone back and forth between headquarters, regional office, back to the field, back to headquarters. And I think for me, it's a healthy balance to spend time in the field as well and, and understand the reality of a crisis response. I had never worked in a conflict setting before. I'd worked for a year in Peru, but it's not a conflict place. It's and I remember sitting in meetings and talking about the situation in Chad and in Afghanistan, and it sounded so abstract and so bizarre that I, yeah, it, it would have been very, very bizarre for me to stay in, in Geneva. Yep. But still it has its, I mean, obviously, so you're on the field, you're directly helping people in need, and that is what your calling really was towards, mm. but it's got a cost, right? You're away from home uh, most of the time. You're living in difficult circumstances. Uh, how, how did you manage to balance that? Yeah, I was just going uh, to mention that when you asked uh, how was the decision of going to the field. So I was in a long-term relationship at the time and it was very clear to my partner that I had this calling of working in the sector. He was kind enough and understanding enough to always encourage me in my professional aspirations. There was part of me that was also attracted by the adventure and the unknown. And I think that's also part of who I am. I've always had a, an attraction for that. I've 
been working in a number of contexts and I've been in numerous countries and, and I'm still living in, in Kinshasa today, but I have much less the desire to go to the field. Yeah. People heard the list of countries where you lived in, where you worked for. When you look back and obviously it's only a beginning, you've done so much in a few years in this path, at least in working for NGOs. What would you say has been most rewarding? Interesting and challenging question. You just summarized a little bit my last couple of years of working in many different contexts and places. Some of these places I only visited for a couple of weeks for training. So I think I want to put things also a little bit into perspective and the impact I've had is very removed from the impact of people who are in the field every single day, building homes there. There's many different layers to the work in this sector. And I've questioned a lot the impact of the work that aid workers do, that development workers do, and it's part of studying it, but it's also part of global politics. You always question how much money is being poured into aid and people are still starving and there's still problems of malnutrition and people are still badly housed and there's still conflict and where is all this money going to? So I've had my fair share of questioning the actual impact of, of my work and going back to what I'm most proud of where I've had the most impact, I think it's directly on the colleagues and the people I've worked with directly. And I've, I think that's enough for me. Uh, it's enough that I've touched and I've worked with people day in, day out who live in Gaza today. And I've just worked with the two engineers that we were, I was, who were my two colleagues who we were following up on projects. But I feel that I've given them some tools that maybe they didn't have the chance to learn because we've studied in different uh, parts of the world. I've given them a confidence of what they're doing. I've given them other perspectives because I come from the outside and I see things slightly differently. And this is the same thing for me here in Congo. As I was saying, I'm in Kinshasa. I'm very far from actually the conflict. But here I'm working with Congolese who are trying to also understand how the sector works. And now I have, I've got 10 years of experience in the sector. I know how the machine works. I know how to be efficient. I also know what people expect and how to do better data analysis. I know how to, how, I know what to look out for. I don't know the context and I will never claim to know all the contexts I've worked in. I'm an outsider giving people from the inside an outside perspective and giving them the opportunity to to think outside the box and see how things can be done differently. I, I have friends who work in, in protecting civilians from conflict and they tell me, I feel I've never saved a single life. And I'm like, maybe you haven't, but the work you've done through your team and the teams of your teams, etc., have, but it's in the reality as an international aid worker, we're often removed from the reality of the nitty gritty of the field for multiple reasons of not being able to speak the language, not having access because we're target being from a certain culture or, or ethnic background. So 
for me, I gained satisfaction and I think my biggest impact and what I'm most proud of is the work I've done for my direct teams I've worked with in, in all of these different contexts. Now, the flip side of the question, what's been most challenging? Yeah, I think what's most challenging is probably very obvious is balancing a healthy life, family, friends, relationships, whilst doing this job. And I think that's a constant also juggle back and forth. And that's, this is also why I've been back and forth and I've spent five years living in Europe for an organization at regional level, which allowed me to see many countries, but I was always going back home where I was living with my partner and having a bit of a more normal life in Europe, but then also missing the field and missing having a more building a team, building something in some of these contexts, which I'm doing right now in, the, in Congo. And I think, yeah, the constant challenge is that, and maybe I'm missing the also very obvious part, which is the, the context itself. I'm dealing every day with people who are the poorest of the poor and have on top of that lost everything or are constantly targeted by groups or, and that's also a challenge, which I think we build tough skin around. But we often forget as humanitarian workers how much it actually affects us. And yeah, I remember times coming back from some of my trips needing a couple of weeks, sometimes even a couple of months to digest some of the stories, some of the the people I met and still, yeah, still today some, you know, I'll, I'll remember forever different people I've met over the years in these different contexts. Yeah, it's difficult if it's your job to supposedly fix the problems that are always there and you actually see the problems in the thick of it, the most mm-hmm. un- seemingly in- insurmountable problems that's, uh, and you, and that's your job to actually try and fix this. That's, uh, first it's high stakes and second, it's difficult to be confronted with obviously the responsibility, but also mm-hmm. just the reality of it. It's actually, I don't know what it is like, but I can just try and mm-hmm. imagine. It reminds me uh, a quote that it's not a quote, but something that Melinda Gates was saying about in her uh, book that Barbara was listening to, which talks about at some point you're so overwhelmed by the weight of the responsibility of trying to fix all of those problems. And ultimately I had to give up that weight of the responsibility and just do my best. <laughs> I just stop here. But it doesn't mean that what doesn't hurt or impact to what we learn is that you can't fix anything we can't we're we're just trying to make it less worse and we're cogging the wheel i focus on housing someone else focuses on food someone else focuses on health i can't fix someone's someone's situation i can just come up with my small added knowledge and expertise in my sector. And I think remaining over the years, I've realized remaining really humble about what we can do and what is also possible because yeah, you learn this when you learn, when you work in the sector. And I think also a medical um, professional also learned that to not give hope in areas that you don't control. I remember doing a first aid training 
and the person was telling us never to say it's going to be fine because you actually don't know if it's going to be fine but you can say i'm here for you i'm listening what can i do to help not creating hope in areas where you don't have control also i think helps the person listening not to hope things from you that you can't give but it also helps you as an individual not to give things that you can't actually and and yeah when you work in the social caring sector it's important to also know how much and what can you give and i see my job today as a job it's my profession i'm not just trying to save the world i spend my days in front of excel spreadsheets and writing strategies it's a professional career that that has its own industry so what's next for you i'm here (laughs) i'm in kinshasa and i'm probably here be here for for a while there's there's a lot to be done here it's a country that is the size of western europe i feel like i'm covering six or seven countries at the same time but then we'll see i don't know i think i'll probably try and find a way again to come back to europe and have a better uh, balance with with my personal life i feel i've gone through my careers in steps i feel it was architecture humanitarian work architecture humanitarian work and now i'm doing a professional boost and then i go and invest a bit more in my life eventually i have to considering the work i do i think a lot of the the progression in my field is more when i'm out there in the field so i have to pay the cost professionally i can still work i'll still be doing interesting things but but yeah i think it's always you can never have it all. That's something I realized. You can't have the perfect dream job living in the big city and with all your friends and your the best love life and family and all of that. So it's always a bit of a juggle between these different things. And so for now, I'm happy here and I'm in, I feel I'm learning a lot. I'm learning about a whole continent and a very big country and an organization I haven't worked with before as well. And I think when I feel I've stopped learning and or I've lost hope or I'm too tired, it will be time to to change and, and do something else. But mm-hmm. I think I'll stay in the sector for uh, a while longer. I'm still enjoying the thrill. Every, every time I pack my bag to go to the field, there's a bit of stress, but healthy adrenaline as well. Yeah, I think I'm quite lucky to have followed a career that gives me a lot of excitement, which I definitely need in my life. Yeah, it sounds like it. And we didn't talk about this, and it's not the purpose of the podcast, but I'd be curious to hear your perspective. I was expecting to hear, in a way, to my question on what's been most challenging to hear about being a woman in such a space where you travel to that let's call them in some cases, macho countries, dangerous environments. How has that affected you or how's, how, what role has that played being a woman following the career path that you follow? I don't know if that has, or that's the only reason I grew up in a family of four girls. I have a wonderful mother who's, who's 
given us a great example of uh, combining work and family. And I think a part of me was also always driven to work and succeed professionally as a woman. Working in the sector is definitely challenging, but I think it's also challenging in, in other contexts as well. And maybe it's less visible, it's less in your face. But I think discrimination, women face discrimination also a lot in more Western cultures. And sometimes it's even harder to tackle it because it's less visible. Because it's less obvious. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not to say that it hasn't been a challenge for me. I think it's been, it's been really important to work with, to, to see how other women older than me were maneuvering through different cultures and different societies, uh, and asking a lot of questions. I remember my first trip, um, to Afghanistan. I had a, a one-to-one with the country director who was an Australian woman who'd been living there for 10 years. And she told me where to, what clothes to buy, when to put it when I was in the plane. She, so I think there's also a lot of support with, within the women community working in the sector on how to deal with being, being a, a woman in, in the sector. I think I've become more and more of a feminist over the years. and has does that is that related to my work or being a woman in the sector i don't know if it i think it's probably a combination of things but i've also seen fantastic projects led by women in places like afghanistan by women engineers who were leading construction projects which today very unfortunately would be impossible but it gives me a lot of strength actually it has also given me a lot of strength to see women in societies that very visibly are discriminated, but are breaking boundaries over and over again. And I, I, yeah, I find it, I find it so admirable to, yeah, observe their strength and dedication to break those cultural barriers. As we're about to part, any comments, words, that you would have liked to say, especially considering people who are either looking for direction or have direction, but are hesitating to follow it. I I work a lot with my gut feeling and I had this hunch from very early on that there was this this sector that I was interested in uh, and I didn't know whether it was going to be possible or not. I think, yeah, remain curious, ask questions, try and meet as many people as possible who are in the sector or around or working in kind of similar areas. And that might give people insight on how to go about it. And I think hearing different stories, a bit like what, what you're doing with this podcast, giving a voice to different stories. And I think it's very powerful and don't give up. It can take many years and it took me years of going back and forth for various reasons. But I'm very happy I pursued it because I think I would be really miserable if I was working in an architecture practice. 
I think I would not be a very happy person. And I think the world needs more happy people. So follow your dreams. Well, <laughs> Maybe that's a bit cheesy. <laughs> okay. But I, I like it. And, and I guess that's also the purpose of the, the podcast is follow your dreams because they're to some extent realistic, which obviously is a question that you've asked yourself many times. And that's why you were doing your back and forth, but you saw a path and you so the possibility of making your dream a reality and, and a career and mm. we've done. So not that necessarily mm. every day it's the dream, but it's very meaningful and purposeful and feeling useful. And even though sometimes, like you said, it's more for the colleagues you worked with, it's, it's, it's a great story that you shared and I'm very, very grateful that you've been with us today. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for giving me this time as well. I hope this episode inspired you to follow your passion and purpose because that's my mission with this podcast. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends and family. Also, if you know someone who's looking for direction, I run a six-week course which combines deep personal work, group coaching sessions, and a buddy system. Participants love the course. You can learn more at www.darebe. Darebe is spelled D-A-R-E. B-E dot M-E. Derby yourself. <laughs>